Volume One, Introduction, Part Four of Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume One, Introduction, Part Four. As the practice of contracting for blackmail was an obvious encouragement to rapine, and a great obstacle to the course of justice, it was, by the statute of 1567, chapter 21, declared a capital crime, both on the part of him who levied and him who paid this sort of tax. But the necessity of the case prevented the execution of this severe law, I believe, in at least one instance, and men went on submitting to a certain unlawful imposition, rather than run the risk of utter ruin just as it is now found difficult or impossible to prevent those who have lost a very large sum of money by robbery from compounding with the felons for restoration of a part of their booty. At what rate Rob Roy levied blackmail I never heard stated, but there is a formal contract by which his nephew, in 1741, agreed with various landlords of estates in the counties of Perth, Stirling, and Dumbarton, to recover cattle stolen from them, or to pay the value within six months of the loss being intimated, if such intimation were made to him with sufficient dispatch, in consideration of a payment of five pounds on each one hundred pounds of valued rent, which was not a very heavy insurance. Petty thefts were not included in the contract, but the theft of one horse, or one head of black cattle, or of sheep exceeding the number of six, fell under the agreement. Rob Roy's profits upon such contracts brought him in a considerable revenue in money or cattle, of which he made a popular use, for he was publicly liberal as well as privately beneficent. The minister of the parish of Bulkheder, whose name was Robertson, was at one time threatening to pursue the parish for an augmentation of his stipend. Rob Roy took an opportunity to assure him that he would do well to abstain from this new exaction, a hint which the minister did not fail to understand. But to make him some indemnification, MacGregor presented him every year with a cow and a fat sheep, and no scruples as to the mode in which the donor came by them are said to have affected the reverend gentleman's conscience. The following amount of the proceedings of Rob Roy on an application to him from one of his contractors had in it something very interesting to me, as told by an old countryman in the Lennox who was who was present on the expedition. But as there is no point or market incident in the story, and as it must necessarily be without the half-frightened, half-bewildered look with which the narrator accompanied his recollections, it may possibly lose its effect when transferred to paper. My informant stated himself to have been a lad of fifteen, living with his father on the estate of a gentleman in the Lennox, whose name I have forgotten, in the capacity of herd. On a fine morning in the end of October, the period when such calamities were almost always to be apprehended, they found the highland thieves had been down upon them, and swept away ten or twelve head of cattle. Rob Roy was sent for, and came with a party of seven or eight armed men. He heard with great gravity all that could be told him of the circumstances of the crack, and expressed his confidence that the herd widdifows, or mad herdsmen, a name given to cattle-stealers, properly one who deserves to fill a widdy or a halter. Anyway, the heard witty fowls could not have carried their booty far, and that he should be able to recover them. 
he desired that two lowlanders should be sent on the party as it was not to be expected that any of his gentlemen would take the trouble of driving the cattle when he should recover possession of them my informant and his father were dispatched on the expedition they had no good will to the journey nevertheless provided with a little food and with a dog to help them to manage the cattle they set off with MacGregor. They travelled a long day's journey in the direction of the mountain Benvorlich, and slept for the night in a ruinous hut or bothy. The next morning they resumed their journey among the hills, Rob Roy directing their course by signs and marks on the heath which my informant did not understand. About noon Rob commanded the armed party to halt and to lie couched in the heather, where it was the thickest. "'Do you and your son,' he said to the oldest lowlander, Go boldly over the hill you'll see beneath you, and a glen on the other side your master's cattle feeding. It may be with others. Gather your own together, taking care to disturb no one else, and drive them to this place. If anyone speak to you or threaten you, tell them that I am here at the head of twenty men. But what if they abuse us or kill us? said the lowland peasant by no means delighted at finding the embassy imposed on him and his son. "'If they do you any wrong,' said Rob, "'I'll never forgive them as long as I live.' The lowlander was by no means content with this security, but did not think it safe to dispute Rob's injunctions. He and his son climbed the hill, therefore, found a deep valley where they grazed, as Rob had predicted, a large herd of cattle. They cautiously selected those which their master had lost, and took measures to drive them over the hill. As soon as they began to remove them, they were surprised by hearing cries and screams, and, looking around in fear and trembling, they saw a woman, seeming to have started out of the earth, who flighted at them, that is, scolded them in Gaelic. When they contrived, however, in the best Gaelic they could muster, to deliver the message Rob Roy told them, she became silent, and disappeared without offering them any further annoyance. The chief heard their story on their return, and spoke with great complacency of the art which he possessed of putting such things to right, without any unpleasant bustle. The party were now on their road home, and the danger, though not the fatigue, of the expedition was at an end. They drove on the cattle with little repose until it was nearly dark, when Rob proposed to halt for the night upon a wide moor, across which a cold northeast wind, with frost on its wing, was whistling to the tune of the pipers of Strathnairn. Oh, the winds which sweep a wild glen in Badenoch are so-called. The highlanders, sheltered by their plaids, lay down on the heath quite comfortably enough, but the lowlanders had no protection whatever. Rob Roy, observing this, directed one of his followers to afford the old man a portion of his plaid. Brother Callant, the boy, he may, said the freebooter, keep himself warm by walking about and watching the cattle. My informant heard this sentence with no small distress and as the frost-wind grew more and more cutting, it seemed to freeze the very blood in his young veins. He'd been exposed to weather all his life, he said, but never could forget the cold of that night. Insomuch that in the bitterness of his heart he cursed the bright moon for giving no heat with so much light. At length the sense of cold and weariness became so intolerable that he resolved to desert his watch to seek some repose and shelter. With that purpose he couched himself down behind one of the most bulky of the highlanders, who acted as lieutenant to the party. Not satisfied with having secured the shelter of the man's large person, he coveted a share of his plaid, and by imperceptible degrees drew a corner of it round him. He was now comparatively in paradise, and slept sound till daybreak, 
when he awoke, and was terribly afraid, on observing that his nocturnal operations had altogether uncovered the Duhenwassel's neck and shoulders, which, lacking the plaid which should have protected them, were covered with cranrich, i.e. hoar-frost. The young lad rose in great dread of a beating, at least, when it should be found how luxuriously he had been accommodated at the expense of a principal person of the party. Good Mr. Lieutenant, however, got up and shook himself, rubbing off the hoar-frost with his plaid and muttering something of a cold nicht. They then drove on the cattle, which were restored to their owner without further adventure. The above can hardly be termed a tale, but yet it contains materials both for the poet and the artist. It was perhaps about the same time that by a rapid march into the Balkhidder hills at the head of a body of his own tenantry, the Duke of Montrose actually surprised Rob Roy and made him prisoner. He was mounted behind one of the Duke's followers named James Stuart, and made fast to him by a horse-girth. The person who had him thus in charge was grandfather of the intelligent man of the same name, now deceased, who lately kept the inn in the vicinity of Loch Catherine and acted as a guide to visitors through that beautiful scenery. From him I learned the story many years before. He was either a publican or a guide, except to more foul shooters. It was evening, to resume the story, and the Duke was pressing on to lodge his prisoner so long sought after in vain, in some place of security, when in crossing the teeth or forth, I forget which, MacGregor took an opportunity to conjure Stuart, by all the ties of old acquaintance and good neighbourhood, to give him some chance of an escape from an assured doom. Stuart was moved with compassion, perhaps with fear. He slipped the girth-buckle, and Rob, dropping down from behind the horse's crop, dived, swam, and escaped, pretty much as described in the novel. When James Stuart came on shore, the Duke hastily demanded where his prisoner was, and as no distinct answer was returned, instantly suspected Stuart's connivance at the escape of the outlaw, and, drawing a steel pistol from his belt, struck him down with a blow on the head, from the effects of which his descendant said he never completely recovered. In the success of his repeated escapes from the pursuit of his powerful enemy, Rob Roy at length became a wanton and facetious. He wrote a mock challenge to the Duke, which he circulated among his friends to amuse them over a bottle. The reader will find this document in the appendix, appendix number three. It's written in a good hand, and not particularly deficient in grammar or spelling. Our southern readers must be given to understand that it was a piece of humour, a quiz, in short, on the part of the outlaw, who was too sagacious to propose such a rencontre in reality. This letter was written in the year 1719. In the following year Rob Roy composed another epistle very little to his own reputation, as he therein confesses having played booty during the Civil War of 1715. It is addressed to General Wade, at that time engaged in disarming the Highland clans, and making military roads through the country. The letter is a singular composition. It sets out the writer's real and unfeigned desire to have offered his service to King George, but for his liability to be thrown into jail for a civil debt at the instance of the Duke of Montrose. Being thus debarred from taking the right side, he acknowledged he embraced the wrong one upon Falstaff's principle that since the king wanted men and the rebels soldiers, it were worse shame to be idle in such a stirring world than to embrace the worst side, where it as black as rebellion could make it. The impossibility of his being neutral in such a debate Rob seems to lay down as an undeniable proposition. 
At the same time, while he acknowledges having been forced into an unnatural rebellion against King George, he pleads that he not only avoided acting offensively against His Majesty's forces on all occasions, but, on the contrary, sent to them what intelligence he could collect from time to time, for the truth of which he refers to His Grace the Duke of Argyle. What influence this plea had on General Wade we have no means of knowing. Rob Roy appears to have continued to live very much as usual. His fame, in the meanwhile, passed beyond the narrow limits of the country in which he resided. A pretended history of him appeared in London during his lifetime, under the title of the Highland Rogue. It's a catchpenny publication, bearing in front the effigy of a species of ogre, with a beard of a foot in length, and his actions are as much exaggerated as his personal appearance. Some few of the best-known adventures of the hero are told, though with little accuracy, but the greater part of the pamphlet is entirely fictitious. It's a great pity so excellent a theme for a narrative of the kind had not fallen into the hands of Defoe, who was engaged at the time on subjects somewhat similar, though inferior in dignity and interest. As Rob Roy advanced in years, he became more peaceable in his habits, and his nephew, Hlun Du, with most of his tribe, renounced those peculiar quarrels with the Duke of Montrose, by which his uncle had been distinguished. The policy of that great family had latterly been rather to attach this wild tribe by kindness than to follow the mode of violence which had been hitherto ineffectually resorted to. Leases at a low rent were granted to many of the MacGregors, who had heretofore held possessions in the Duke's Highland property merely by occupancy and Glengyle, or Blackney, who continued to act as collector of blackmail, managed his police, as a commander of the Highland Watch, arrayed at the charge of government. He is said to have strictly abstained from the open and lawless depredations which his kinsmen had practised. It was probably after this state of temporary quiet had been obtained that Rob Roy began to think of the concerns of his future state. He had been bred and long professed himself a Protestant, but in his later years he embraced the Roman Catholic faith, perhaps on Mrs. Cole's principle, that it was a comfortable religion for one of his calling. He is said to have alleged, as the cause of his conversion, the desire to gratify the noble family of Perth, who were then strict Catholics. Having, as he observed, assumed the name of the Duke of Argyle, his first protector, he could pay no compliment worth the Earl of Perth's acceptance, save complying with his mode of religion. Rob did not pretend, when pressed closely on the subject, to justify all the tenets of Catholicism, and acknowledged that extreme unction always appeared to him a great waste of olzy, or oil. Such an admission is ascribed to the Robert Donald Bean Lean in Waverley. Chapter 22 In the last years of Rob Roy's life, his clan was involved in a dispute with one more powerful than themselves, Stuart of Appin a chief of the tribe so named, was proprietor of a hill-farm in the braes of Balkidder, called Invernenty. The MacGregors of Rob Roy's tribe claimed a right to it by ancient occupancy, and declared they would oppose to the uttermost the settlement of any person upon the farm not being of their own name. The Stuarts came down with two hundred men well armed to do themselves justice by main force. The MacGregors took to the field, but were unable to muster an equal strength. Rob Roy, fending himself the weaker party, asked a parley in which he represented that both clans were friends to the king, and that he was unwilling that they should be weakened by mutual conflict, 
and thus made a merit of surrendering to Appin the disputed territory of Invernendy. Appin, accordingly, settled his tenants there, at an easy quit-rent. The MacLarens, a family dependent on the Stuarts, and from whose character of strength and bravery it was expected that they would make their right good if annoyed by the MacGregors. When all this had been amicably adjusted, in the presence of the two clans, drawn up in arms near the Kirk of Balkidder, Rob Roy, apparently fearing his tribe might be thought to have conceded too much upon the occasion, stepped forward and said that, where so many gallant men were met in arms, it would be shameful to part without a trial of skill, and therefore he took the freedom to invite any gentleman of the Stuarts present to exchange a few blows with him for the honour of their respective clans. The brother-in-law of Appin and second chieftain of the clan, Alastair Stuart, of Invernile, accepted the challenge, and they encountered with broad sword and target before their respective kinsmen. Uh, some accounts state that Appin himself was Rob Roy's antagonist on this occasion. My recollection from the accounts of Invernale himself was as stated in the text, but the period when I received the information is now so distant that it is possible I may be mistaken. Invernale was rather of low stature, but very well made, athletic, and an excellent swordsman. The combat lasted till Rob received a slight wound in the arm, which was the usual termination of such a combat when fought for honour only, and not with a mortal purpose. Rob Roy dropped his point and congratulated his adversary on having been the first man who ever drew blood from him. The victor generously acknowledged that without the advantage of youth and the agility accompanying it, he probably could not have come off with advantage. This was probably one of Rob Roy's last exploits in arms. The time of his death is not known with certainty, but he is generally said to have survived 1738, and to have died an aged man. When he found himself approaching his final change, he expressed some contrition for particular parts of his life. His wife laughed at these scruples of conscience, and exhorted him to die like a man as he had lived. In reply he rebuked her for her violent passions, and the counsels she had given him. You have put strife, he said, betwixt me and the best men of the country, and now you would place enmity between me and my God. There is a tradition no way inconsistent with the former, if the character of Rob Roy be justly considered, that while on his deathbed he learned that a person with whom he was at enmity proposed to visit him. Raise me from my bed, said the invalid. Throw me plaid round me, and bring me MacLaymore, a dirk and pistols, it shall never be said that a foeman said Rob Roy MacGregor defenceless and unarmed. His foeman, conjectured to be one of the MacLarens before and after mentioned, entered and paid his compliments, inquiring after the health of his formidable neighbour. Rob Roy maintained a cold, haughty civility during their short conference, and so soon as he had left the house. Now, he said, all is over, let the piper play. Ha till me tulich. We return no more and he is said to have expired before the dirge was finished. This singular man died in bed in his own house in the parish of Balkidder. He was buried in the churchyard of the same parish, where his tombstone is only distinguished by a rude attempt at the figure of a broadsword. The character of Rob Roy is, of course, a mixed one. His sagacity, boldness, and prudence, qualities so highly necessary to success in war, became in some degree vices from the manner in which they were employed. The circumstances of his education, however, must be admitted as some extenuation of his habitual transgressions against the law, and for his political tergiversations 
he might in that distracted period plead that example of men far more powerful and less excusable in becoming the sport of circumstances than the poor and desperate outlaw. On the other hand, he was in the constant exercise of virtues, the more meritorious as they seem inconsistent with his general character. Pursuing the occupation of a predatory chieftain, in modern phrase a captain of banditti, Rob Roy was moderate in his revenge and humane in his successes. No charge of cruelty or bloodshed, unless in battle, is brought against his memory. In like manner, the formidable outlaw was the friend of the poor, and to the utmost of his ability the support of the widow and the orphan, kept his word when pledged, and died lamented in his own wild country, where there were hearts grateful for his beneficence, though their minds were not sufficiently instructed to appreciate his errors. The author perhaps ought to stop here, but the fate of a part of Rob Roy's family is so extraordinary as to call for a continuation of this somewhat prolix account, as affording an interesting chapter, not on highland manners alone, but on every stage of society in which the people of a primitive and half-civilized tribe are brought into close contact with a nation in which civilization and polity have attained a complete superiority. Rob had five sons, Col, Ronald, James, Duncan, and Robert. Nothing occurs worth notice concerning three of them, but James, who was a very handsome man, seemed to have had a good deal of his father's spirit, and the mantle of Douglas Yarmore had apparently descended on the shoulders of Robin Oig, that is, young Robin. Shortly after Rob Roy's death, the ill-will which the MacGregors entertained against the MacLarens again broke out, at the instigation, it was said, of Rob's widow, who seems thus far to have deserved the character given to her by her husband, as an ate, stirring up to blood and strife. Robin Oig, under her instigation, swore that as soon as he could get back a certain gun which had belonged to his father, and had been lately at Doan to be repaired, he would shoot MacLaren for having presumed to settle on his mother's land. This fatal piece was taken from Robin Oig when he was seized many years afterwards. It remains in possession of the magistrates before whom he was brought for examination, and now makes part of a small collection of arms belonging to the author. It was a Spanish-barreled gun, marked with the letters R.M.C., for Robert MacGregor Campbell. He was as good as his word, and shot MacLaren when between the stilts of his plough, wounding him mortally. The aid of a highland leech was procured, who probed the wound with a probe made out of a castock, i.e., the stalk of a colewort or cabbage. This learned gentleman declared he would not venture to prescribe, not knowing with what shot the patient had been wounded. MacLaren died about the same time his cattle were hoffed and his livestock destroyed in a barbarous manner. Robin Oig, after this feat, which one of his biographers represents as the unhappy discharge of a gun, retired to his mother's house, to boast that he had drawn the first blood in the quarrel aforesaid. On the approach of troops and a body of the Stuarts, who were bound to take up the cause of their tenant, Robin Oig absconded and escaped all search. The doctor, already mentioned by name of Callum McInleister, with James and Ronald, brothers to the actual perpetrator of the murder, were brought to trial. But as they contrived to represent the action as a rash deed committed by the daft callant Rob, to which they were not accessory, the jury found their accession to the crime was not proven. The alleged acts of spoil and violence on the MacLaren's cattle were also found to be unsupported by evidence. As it was proved, however, that the two brothers, Ronald and James, 
were held and reputed thieves, they were appointed to find caution to the extent of two hundred pounds for their good behavior for seven years. Note D. Author's Expedition Against the McLarens. The spirit of clanship was at that time so strong, to which must be added the wish to secure the adherence of stout, able-bodied, and, as the Scotch phrase then went, pretty men, that the representative of the noble family of Perth condescended to act openly as patron of the MacGregors, and appeared as such upon their trial. So at least the author was informed by the late Robert Mackintosh, Esquire, Advocate. The circumstances may, however, have occurred later than 1736, the year in which this first trial took place. Robin Oig served for a time in the 42nd Regiment, and was present at the Battle of Fontenoy, where he was made prisoner and wounded. He was exchanged, returned to Scotland, and obtained his discharge. He afterwards appeared openly in the MacGregor's country, and, notwithstanding his outlawry, married a daughter of Graham of Drunkey a gentleman of some property. His wife died a few years afterwards. The insurrection of 1745, soon afterwards, called the MacGregors to arms. Robert MacGregor of Glencarnock, generally regarded as the chief of the whole name, and grandfather of Sir John, whom the clan received in that character, raised a MacGregor regiment, with which he joined the standard of the Chevalier. The race of Siarmore, however, affecting independence, and commanded by Glen Gyle and his cousin James Roy MacGregor, did not join this kindred corps, but united themselves to the levies of the titular Duke of Perth, until William MacGregor Drummond of Bolhaldi, whom they regarded as head of their branch of Clan Alpine, should come over from France. To cement the union after the Highland fashion, James laid down the name of Campbell, and assumed that of Drummond, in compliment to Lord Perth. He was also called James Roy, after his father, and James Moore, or Big James, from his height. His corps, the relics of his father's Rob's band, behaved with great activity. With only twelve men he succeeded in surprising and burning, for the second time, the fort at Inversnaid, constructed for the express purpose of bridling the country of the MacGregors. What rank or command James MacGregor had is uncertain. He calls himself Major and Chevalier Johnstone calls him captain. He must have held rank under Glendu, his kinsman, but his active and audacious character placed him above the rest of his brethren. Many of his followers were unarmed. He supplied the want of guns and swords with scythe-blades set straight upon their handles. At the Battle of Preston Pans, James Roy distinguished himself. "'His company,' said Chevalier Johnstone, "'did great execution with their scythes.' They cut the legs of the horses in two, the rider through the middle of their bodies. MacGregor was brave and intrepid, but at the same time somewhat whimsical and singular. When advancing to the charge with his company, he received five wounds, two of them from balls that pierced his body through and through. Stretched on the ground, with his head resting on his hand, he called out loudly to the highlanders of his company, "'My lads, I'm not dead, by God. I shall see if any of you does not do his duty.' The victory, as is well known, was instantly obtained. In some curious letters of James Roy, published in Blackwood's Magazine, Volume 2, page 228, it appears that his thigh-bone was broken on this occasion, and that he, nevertheless, rejoined the army with six companies, and was present at the Battle of Culloden. 
After that defeat the clan MacGregor kept together in a body, and did not disperse till they had returned into their own country. They brought James Roy with them in a litter, and without being particularly molested, he was permitted to reside in the MacGregor's country along with his brothers. James MacGregor Drummond was attainted for high treason with persons of more importance, but it appears he had entered into some communication with government, as in the letters quoted he mentions having obtained a pass from the Lord Justice Clark in 1747, which was a sufficient protection to him from the military. The circumstance is obscurely stated in one of the letters already quoted, but may perhaps, joined to subsequent incidents, authorize the suspicion that James, like his father, could look at both sides of the cards. As the confusion of the country subsided, the MacGregors, like foxes which had baffled the hounds, drew back to their old haunts, and lived unmolested. But an atrocious outrage, in which the sons of Rob Roy were concerned, brought at length on the family the full vengeance of the law. James Roy was a married man, and had fourteen children, but his brother, Robin Oig, was now a widower, and it was resolved, if possible, that he should make his fortune by carrying off and marrying, by force if necessary, some woman of fortune from the lowlands. The imagination of the half-civilized Highlanders was less shocked at the idea of this particular species of violence than might be expected from their general kindness to the weaker sex when they make part of their own families. But all their views were tinged with the idea that they lived in a state of war, and in such a state, from the time of the siege of Troy to the moment when Pervisa fell, Child Harold's Pilgrimage Canto two. The wealthier slaughtered, the lovelier spared. The female captives are, to uncivilized victors, the most valuable part of the booty. We need not refer to the rape of Sabines, or to a similar instance in the Book of Judges, for evidence that such deeds of violence have been committed upon a large scale. Indeed, this sort of enterprise was so common among the Highland line as to give rise to a variety of songs and ballads. See Appendix Number 6 End of Rob Roy Volume 1, Introduction, Part 4 Recording by Mike Harris